This morning we're going to be in Judges 4 and Judges 5 as we continue to work our way through this exciting Old Testament book. The only female judge that we read about in the entire book of Judges. A woman by the name of Deborah. And if you think last, story, last week's story was wild, wait till you read this one. You're in for it today. So in chapter 4, we have the narrative of what's happening between Deborah and Barak. And then in chapter 5, we basically have this poem that provides more detail about what happened in the narrative of chapter 4. Remember I told you when you work your way through Old Testament narrative, the The writer works very quickly, and sometimes he doesn't fill in all the details of what he's writing. So the poem in chapter 5 actually gives some more detail that you don't find out about in chapter 4. So we see in this story the same cycle that we've been talking about every single week. The people sin, God sends a nation to subdue them, the people cry out to God, and then he raises up a judge or a deliverer to save them from their oppression. Now, last week, we learned about Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar, but today we have the story of Deborah. So we're going to flip back and forth today through chapters 4 and chapters 5, but here are the four main points that you can go ahead and write those down. We see, number one, a common pattern. Number two, an unlikely judge. Number three, a unique hero. And then number four, a song of praise. A common pattern, an unlikely judge, a unique hero, and then a song of praise. Number one, we see a common pattern. Look at the first three verses of chapter four. And we see the first three steps of the cycle that I just previously mentioned. Verse one, we're told that Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Now, I know what many of you are thinking. How can the Israelites be so incredibly dumb? God delivers them from these foreign nations, and their response is to go back and to begin sinning again and turn away from God. But before you look down upon the Israelites, is that not exactly what we do as followers of Jesus We confess our sin to him. I just sat right down there and listed this whole plethora of sins that we as his children commit. And the reality is, perhaps even before we leave today, all of us will almost have committed all of those sins that I just mentioned in the span of the service. So we fall into this same cycle. We are guilty of sin. We have to constantly confess our sins before the Lord. All of us have some sort of besetting sin that often is like our thorn in the flesh that just reminds us of our need for God's constant grace and mercy. So when we read the story of Deborah and Barak today, just remember, this is you, brother. This is you, sister. We are guilty of the same things we read about in this story. So God does what? He brings consequences on the Israelites as a result of their sin. Now, last week, those came in the form of three nations. With Othniel, it was the, well, no, Ehud, it was the Moabites. With Shamgar, it was the Philistines. And then I'm drawing a blank. I can't even remember who Othniel's was. But they had a foreign nation too. But here in Judges 4, we're dealing with the Canaanites. 
This is the nation that God is using to oppress and subdue his people as a result of their disobedience. Sin always brings with it consequences. Now, here's the beauty for us that live on this side of the new covenant. We're in the new covenant age. The Israelites were under the Old Covenant age. So some of the punishments that we read about in the Old Testament for the Israelites often seem rather harsh and severe. And the beauty of the New Covenant is that as opposed to God having to send foreign nations to subdue and oppress us, you know what he gives us instead as one of the primary means for discipline? The bride of Christ, the church. We are actually supposed to be in the business of disciplining one another, holding one another accountable. Look at the most well-known passage on this that Jesus himself teaches on. Matthew chapter 18. Here's what he says beginning in verse 15. The context of this is when you know of a brother or sister who is in sin. Here's how we are to handle it as the church. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." In the new covenant, we actually have the bride of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, as one of the primary means by which God's people are corrected and rebuked. Now, this is a very important verse, Galatians 6, chapter 1. Paul says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's the problem with a lot of church discipline that we have is we don't do it in a spirit of gentleness. We approach someone in anger and we jump down them and they receive our rebuke very defensively because we're not exercising it in the manner in which Paul writes here, a spirit of gentleness. So you have Matthew 18, you have Galatians 6, you have 1 Corinthians 5, you have 2 Thessalonians 3, Titus 3, all of these passages in the New Testament epistles that you read about all tell us that the church is one of the primary means by which God disciplines his children under the new covenant. Now, caveat, many of us do not like being told when we're wrong. Surely it's not just me, right? It's a punch to the gut. We don't like it. Did you know, this is a picking on my millennial generation and the generation directly under me, Gen Z. Millennials and Gen Z are often called by social scientists and social psychologists the most fragile generation. You know what that means? It means they cannot handle criticism of any shape or kind. And those of you that are boomers are now all nodding your head in agreement with me. Millennials and Gen Z are incredibly fragile. 
We do not receive criticism well. And there's a number of factors that we're not going to get into this morning why that is the case. Part of it is you as our boomer parents overprotected us, but you're not all to blame for that, of course. But criticism is healthy. If you are a follower of Jesus and you are engaged in some sort of sinful behavior, you need and want your brother and sister in Christ gently rebuking you. Because you don't want to stay in your sin. I don't want to stay in my sin. I want to be pursuing Christ with holiness as much as I possibly can. So sometimes I need brothers and sisters sitting out there among you to come and tell me, brother, you were in the wrong. You did not handle this according to the text of Scripture. And in humility, I have to receive that, even though I might not like it. I have to receive that and say, this brother or sister is approaching me about this issue because they love me. Now, in the Old Testament, this is how God showed his love towards his people. And in our minds, we're thinking that is a really harsh way to show love. But the reality is, God knows better than we know. And his ways are better than our ways. So we must trust what we read in difficult passages like this. So we see that same pattern happening here. They sin, God brings a punishment, and then he raises up, in this instance, an unlikely judge. The people cry out to God because they had been oppressed by the Canaanites specifically the commander of the Canaanite army, Sisera. He had 900 chariots of iron. And the text tells us that he oppressed Israel for 20 years, verse 3 tells us. So God raises up a judge. But this judge is unlike any that we've read about thus far because it's a female judge. And Deborah not only is a judge, she is a prophet of God. When we use the term prophet in the Old Testament, we're talking about someone who is the actual mouthpiece of God himself. They spoke on behalf of God. They're all throughout the Old Testament. Now, Deborah is a different judge, not only because she's female, but also because she reigns more administratively. She doesn't reign as this elite warrior that we read about with Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar. She stood under this tree, the text tells us, and the people came and brought to her all of their problems. So in many ways, she functioned more like a queen administratively. But she was this prophet of God. But the fighting in this story is not actually done by the judge. It's done by the one that the judge calls. And that is Barak. The name means lightning, just so you know. He's told to gather 10,000 men from Naphtali and Zebulun. And Deborah is going to use Barak to draw Sisera out and give him victory over the commander of the Canaanite army. We're not given any information about why God chose Barak. And here's what Barak tells her. She approaches him and says, God is going to use you to defeat the Canaanites. And his answer is, I'm not going unless you go with me. 
Now, if you think about all of the stories throughout the Old Testament, this is not unique to Barak. Think of all of the calls that God places on people's lives throughout the Old Testament. They almost never go the first time. Moses is constantly doubting. Are you sure you want to send me? Is there not anyone else you can send? Gideon does it later on in the very same book that we're reading. Jonah actually goes the opposite direction. So Barak is very hesitant to do what Deborah is telling him to do in this passage. He says, I'm only going to go if you go with me. You see, obedience to God is not always within the nice confines of our comfort zone, is it? That's what Barak wanted. He wanted God to completely take care of this in a way that would make him feel as comfortable as possible. And if obedience to God were always within the confines of our own comfort zone, let me tell you what would happen. There would be zero missionaries, none. There would be no missionaries dedicating their lives to go to the unreached people groups and these remote places around the world where danger is all around them if God only called people to do what was within their comfort zone. There would be no missionaries. None of us would share our faith because very few of us feel comfortable doing that. We would never risk our lives for the sake of the gospel. And yet all of these stories throughout the book of Judges, throughout the Old Testament, and into the New Testament, it almost seems like Jesus almost never calls someone to do something that's actually comfortable for them. And this is a major problem for us as Americans because we are the most comfortable human beings on the face of the earth. And the slightest bit of discomfort, we flee the scene. Barack here might as well be an American. Because when Deborah says, God is going to use you to defeat Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite army, he says, there's no way I'm doing it unless you go with me. Why would he say that? Because he knows that Deborah is the mouthpiece of God in this story. Perhaps God is calling you out of your comfort zone today in some way, shape, or form. Maybe he's calling you to step up into some form of leadership within this body. There's tons of needs within this body. We need more greeters. We need more musicians. We need more preschool teachers. We need more children's teachers. We need more people going on mission trips. There's tons of ways for you to step out of your comfort zone within this body and be used of God. Maybe he's calling you to get involved with one of our local missionary partners. We have tons of them. The Ark, the Harbor, Love in Action, Dothan Rescue Mission, Southeast Alabama Ministry Center, Wiregrass Hope Group. I could keep going. There's tons and tons of ways that God might be calling you to step out from the comforts that you're currently in and follow him. You see, there is no safety or comfort clause built in to our obedience for Christ. And this story is evidence of that. And if God is calling you to any of the things I mentioned or anything else, here's the reality. If God is calling you to do it, you don't have to worry because he will be with you because he is the one calling you to do it. Now, does that mean you won't have this knot in your stomach? No, you will. God's not calling us to a life free of a knot in our stomach. He's calling us to obedience. 
And this is one of the things that we learn in this story. Fortunately for Barak, Deborah agrees with his request. She says, fine, I'll go with you. But here's what's going to happen. You will not receive the glory for this victory. Instead, she says, it's going to come at the hands of a woman. Not her, but somebody else that we're going to read about in just a moment. So Sisera calls out his 900 chariots of iron. And this is what we're told beginning in verse 14 of chapter 4. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Heresheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left, the text tells us. An unlikely judge uses this random warrior by the name of Barak to rout the commander of the Canaanite army. But even though the army is routed, verse 15 tells us very clearly, Sisera escapes. He hops down from his chariot and he flees the scene. A cowardly leader. One who left his troops to be decimated while he escapes with his own life. And here is where we meet a unique hero in the story. Jael is her name. The wife of Heber the Kenite. Now what makes this part of the story so unique is that Jael and her husband Heber actually had formed this alliance with Sisera and Jabin who was the king of Canaan. In other words, basically Sisera is escaping to Heber's tent because he thinks he will get protection because Jael's husband and Jabin, the king of Canaan, had made this informal alliance. Thus, when Sisera arrives at the tent, he is thinking, I'm going to be just fine. So look at verse 18, if you will, with me. It says this, And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. Now there's some things happening here that we need to discuss. The narrator is very clear here that in this exchange between Sisera and Jael, Jael is the one taking the initiative in almost everything that happens. She goes to meet him. She initiates the conversation. She invites him into her tent. She covers him with a rug. And all of that happens before Sisera ever opens his mouth. When he finally does, he says, give me water. And her response is, you can have milk. Who do you think is in charge in this story? Who do you think is taking the initiative? Cicero asks her if she would keep watch 
in case someone came to the tent looking for him. And then we're told, one of the most graphic stories in Judges, so be ready. Verse 21 says this. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. Jael, even though her husband had this formal alliance with Jabin, kills Sisera in a very graphic and unusual way. And we're told in the final two verses of this chapter, so on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Jael's murder of Sisera led to the salvation of the Israelites. And this story, by the way, also validates Deborah's role as prophet and judge. Because when Barak agreed that he would only go if she went, she said, okay, that's fine. But just know, you're not going to receive the glory for this story. There is going to be another who will receive the glory. And that is Jael, the unlikely hero, the unique hero that we read about in this story. Turn to chapter 5, and you see an entire song. I asked Reed if he could set this to music. He was unable to do so. (laughs) I did not ask him. In Judges 5, this is a song of praise. The people actually would have sung this song, similar to what we find in the song of Moses in Exodus 15. When the Israelites had these huge victories, oftentimes the response was a song of praise to God for what he did. For reasons we're not told, this specific event in Judges leads God's people to sing because he gave them victory over his enemies. And the poem, in addition to being sung, gives us more detail about what actually happened in Judges 4 that were not actually given in chapter 4. So look, for example, in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 5. Here's what the text tells us. In the days of Shamgar, this takes us back to the final judge that we read about in chapter 3, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. What are these verses telling us? It had gotten so bad for the Israelites under this Canaanite oppression that people were not even leaving their homes. They were horrified of what might happen. The text tells us the villagers ceased in Israel. Travelers kept to the byways. People were horrified because of what was happening. 
This is the context in which Deborah is raised to leadership within Israel. And Jael is given the task of defeating Sisera. So much oppression, so much evil, the text tells us about. What about the details of how Barak actually defeated the Canaanites? We're not told much in chapter 4, but we're told more in chapter 5. Verses 19 to 21. The kings came. They fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent, Kishon, swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on, my soul, with might. Remember, we're told earlier in chapter 4 that Sisera had 900 chariots of iron. But these verses tell us that in God's sovereign plan, a rainstorm fell in Kishon. And the one area where chariots would not be effective is if there was this sludge of mud and dirt as a result of a steady force of rain. We're to walk away from chapter 5 realizing and praising God because he ultimately is the one who brings his people salvation. Even though sometimes... We've said before when we read the Old Testament that the authors don't give us a lot of ethics in their stories. In other words, they don't always tell us if what's happening is right or wrong. They simply give the details, right? Well, it's not the case with J.L. Look specifically at verse 24 of chapter 5. Most blessed of women be J.L., the wife of Heber the Kenite. Of tent dwelling women, most blessed. The author's telling us JL is a hero. Now I know what you're thinking. This story is so out of character with the attributes of God. But, brothers and sisters, it's really important that you understand number one, the sovereignty of God, but number two, that God often uses the free will of human beings to accomplish and fulfill his purposes in the world. Think back to the best example that we have of this probably in Genesis when Joseph is strutting around in his fancy coat and his brothers beat him up, throw him into a pit, sell him off into slavery. He goes to work for Potiphar. He's wrongfully accused of hitting on his wife. He's thrown into prison. He works his way up to the second in command in all of Egypt for the exact moment when God's people needed to be saved from the famine in Israel. None of us in this room would argue that the things that Joseph experienced in chapters 37 through 50 are fair. And yet, God knew that this is exactly what needed to happen at the exact moment in history so that his people could be saved from starvation. We might struggle with the story of J.L. It might not make sense to us. But we must trust, again, that God's ways are not our ways. 
And I would submit to you that there's another story that might not make sense to us on paper. That is the story of God's own son, Jesus Christ, coming and living the perfect life, never having once sinned, punished, sent to a cross to die an excruciating, painful, and gruesome death for the very people that sinned against him. That's another story in Scripture that we have a hard time processing, that we have a hard time figuring out, how does this make sense? You see, in the story of Deborah and Barak and Jael, we have a hammer and a tent peg that is used to deliver the Israelites from their sin and bringing salvation to God's people. But in the New Testament, we have a hammer and a nail driven into the hands of Jesus Christ so that for any that repent of their sins and believe in the gospel, they can experience salvation. The stories that we read about in the book of Judges are important because they point us to the ultimate judge and deliverer of our faith, Jesus himself. He is the one who delivers his people from bondage. In the book of Judges, it's physical bondage. It's physical slavery. But in the New Testament and in our lives today, Jesus is the only one who saves us from spiritual bondage and spiritual slavery. And it was accomplished through a hammer and a nail. Romans 7, verses 4 to 6, tells us this. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. All of the stories that we read about in the book of Judges only provide the Israelites temporary freedom. Jesus is the only one who can provide eternal freedom. So we approach this story and we're horrified because this lady takes a hammer and a tent peg and she drives it through the skull of the Canaanite leader. It's graphic. It's horrifying. It's not a story we read to our children before bed. But there will come a point, brothers and sisters, when you will need to discuss with your children the hammer and the nail that went through the hands of Jesus Christ for the sins of your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. There is no hope outside of Jesus Christ. Do not back down from teaching the truths of this book, no matter how uncomfortable they may make you feel. The beauty of the gospel this morning is that if you're in this room today, 
and you have not trusted completely in the hammer and the nail that went through the hands of Jesus Christ for your sin, the beauty of the gospel is that it is available to any who will receive it. Repent of your sin, believe in the gospel, and experience eternal freedom in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this opportunity to study a challenging book. And as we now approach the table, for all that are in Christ, we are now going to reflect on what we just talked about, the hammer and the nail that went in Jesus' side and in his hands and in his feet for us. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.